Well, thanks for the uh, introduction. It's really nice to see a bunch of Calvin University students here, and for that very reason, of course, um, I put John Calvin um, up on the <laughs> screen here, and I said to Steve, um, he's, uh, I said, Steve, uh, do you see Calvin uh, on that screen at the front? And he said, yeah, yeah, there he's there. <laughs> so I've actually called this the challenge of environmentalism. And the reason for that is that I think there are two challenges at least that face uh, all of us tonight and the Christian church in particular. One is the challenge of the environment. And that's the kind of thing that uh, David McNeil and others uh, have been working on to try to get a response to our government in respect of the uh, consultation that's out about environment and um, environmental uh, responsibility and environmental issues. But I think also there's a, there's a challenge of what I'm calling environmentalism. And I'm meaning by that the kind of conversation that goes on around queries about the environment and uh, the politics and morality and uh, perspectives of those kinds that are actually not really very scientific at all, but are still, I think, fundamental to thinking about uh, questions of, of the environment. Uh, there'll be a test afterwards to see who can recognize all these people when we get to the end of, um, of tonight. Uh, now, in 1974, um, a remarkable book was published by an Australian philosopher, John Passmore, uh, with the title Man's Responsibility for Nature. And uh, while there are things that I disagree with um, in this book, nonetheless, I think that uh, it was a penetrating analysis, uh, conceptually as well as empirically, about the problems of of the natural world. Of course, you can see it was written in the 70s, but 50 years ago, man's responsibility for nature. I, I guess I've got to issue a health warning uh, and put the hue in front of it. Human responsibility for nature. But in this book, John Passmore made a really interesting, simple, simple dis, uh, distinction. A distinction that I think is still really important for us now. Some of you may be well aware of Passmore's distinction. Um, and that distinction is the distinction between a problem in ecology and an ecological problem. And, and his argument was simply this, a, a problem in ecology is a scientific problem. Uh, for example, you might say, how does DDT find its way into the fat of Antarctic birds? And I guess there are ecologists here uh, among us, environmental scientists might give us a really long answer on that question. Um, um, how is it that uh, global warming results from human action? And you'll get into the science of greenhouse, greenhouse gases and, and, and the like. Uh, but Passmore said that's quite different from an ecological problem. An ecological problem, he said, is a moral judgment. We're saying something's a problem, and we're saying the world would be better off without it. So there's a judgment going on about there's the science, first of all, but there's the political and moral motivation that's needed and a judgment about reckoning something as a problem which we could do without. Now, interestingly, the answers to both of these questions are interrelated, but mostly a scientific answer to a problem in ecology doesn't tell us what the action should be to remove that ecological problem. Neither does merely moral goodwill or indeed political passion answer the technical questions that are involved in trying to figure out what a problem in ecology, how that might be 
be resolved. So this is a way of saying that this kind of subject has to be necessarily interdisciplinary. So there have to be conversations between scientists, uh, moral thinkers, uh, politicians, and the like, if we're to make much progress in thinking about uh, the environment. Now, really, I'm not going to say too much tonight about the first of these. In fact, I'm just going to show you some pretty pictures, beautifully washed out by the kind of orangey hue that we're getting on the, on the screen. Um, but uh, I think all of us are hearing about the problems of the environment. And there might be, an, there might be some climate change skeptics uh, among us here tonight, and I'm sure that the, the sequence of images that I'm going to just go through quite quickly... Um, I'm sure that um, if you're of that uh, inclination, you can explain away uh, most of the slides that I want to show you. I don't want to do that. I think the science is pretty robust. And I'm pretty sure that we have a major environmental and climate change crisis on our hands. Ironically, that's not the challenge that I want us to think about tonight. I think that is a challenge for every one of us. And I think the church has to be thinking about what we all should be doing to address those environmental problems. Uh, but I want to focus not particularly on those, but on a couple of other challenges, particularly to the Christian church, as we go along uh, t- tonight. Glacial retreat and ice melt uh, the diminishment of the glaciers, uh, a major problem, of course, with the consequences to do with rising sea levels and the immense challenge to communities living along uh, coastal coastal regions. Uh, pictures of this sort with polar bears trying to survive in very little ice, of course. Skeptics will say, oh, that kind of thing happened all the time and so on. I think that these are serious problems to do with the disappearance of sea ice. And of course, the diminishment of um, various species, uh, the decline in uh, biodiversity as a consequence of at least some, uh, some reason for, for global, global warming, flooding. Uh, this is just a picture out of one of the uh, local newspapers, and I worked really hard on, just for you, this image, Steve, coming up. Did you like that? <laughs> the M23 uh, flooded uh, not, so, uh, not so long ago, and um, shopping malls. Uh, flooding as a consequence, of course, of uh, far wetter winters. Uh, that we've been been having. And then, uh, of course, the opposite, uh, desertification and the problems of the spreading spreading desert, not least in places like uh, sub-Saharan Africa and the Sahel going across from Niger and so on, uh, and Mali uh, across that belt. Uh, And this, of course, reminds us that uh, global warming and uh, desertification and the like differentially affects people um, who are uh, worse off considerably in the two-thirds world than we are, people whose very livelihoods and subsistence uh, depend on the very small amounts of, of uh, rainfall that they are able, able to get and uh, the, the, the turning into desert of uh, this uh, northern tip of the savannas, uh, a, major, a major problem. And indeed, Steve was referring there to the fires. Uh, here there's uh, one from uh, New South Wales and elsewhere, and of course, the skeptic can say, of course, there's always been firing of, of forest lands and so on, but there's no doubt that the temperatures have been absolutely astonishingly high, uh, not least in, in Australia. Um, 
The problem of pollution, plastic. Um, here's a case of a turtle, of course, got caught up in what looks like a, one of those can um, holders and then uh, gets deformed in, in certain ways. Uh, major problem of plastic. Um, a bird um, that's been caught in oil sludge. And uh, you can see the unbelievably difficult clear-up job uh, that items like this uh, present to us. Pollution more generally, uh, particularly of the oceans, with the knock-on effects of, of exactly that. Um, here's the remaining carcass, I think, of an albatross. And you can see the, the kinds of human-made plastics and others that this bird has ingested prior to its death. Or this one here, struggling to survive, covered in plastic made by, by humans. And of course, there's no doubt, I think, that uh, the stats uh, that are available, not least from um, our own uh, Met Office, showing the warmest years on record the past, uh, five warmest years have occurred between 2006 and 2017, and the coolest years going right back to the latter part of the 19th century. For me, there's no doubt that climate change is happening and that there's a major environmental crisis that faces us. It faces governments. It uh, faces those who have to set targets of one sort or another. It faces industry. And, of course, it faces each one of us with our uh, how we dump out our plastic and uh, recycling goods and, and the like. Now, the first question I really want to ask is, how did all this come about? What's the reason for the terrible problems that we seem to be facing. Let me introduce you to someone that one of you, one or two of you may know, uh, but others, of course, may not have come across, Lynn White Jr. Now, Lynn White Jr. wrote a very significant article way back, I think, in the 1960s, which was entitled The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Ecologic Crisis, appeared in the magazine Science, and um, he wanted to find out what are the roots, even then, this was 50 years ago, even then, where did he think the problem had emerged from? By destroying pagan animism, Christianity made it possible to exploit nature in a mood of indifference to the feelings of natural objects. We shall continue to have a worsening ecologic crisis until we have rejected the Christian axiom that nature has no reason for existence save to serve humanity. So the first port of call is that it's actually Christianity that's to blame for the environmental crisis. Lynn White Jr. went on in his observations, Christianity, in absolute contrast to ancient paganism and Asia's religions, except perhaps Zoroastrianism, not only established a dualism of man and nature, but also insisted that it's God's will that man exploit nature for his proper ends. Now, Lynn White Jr., as a matter of fact, was an elder in the Presbyterian Church in California. But even so, he felt that Christianity bore a huge burden of guilt for the doctrine that human beings could use nature for their own purposes. And um, over the years, of course, um, I was pretty irritated <laughs> Uh, by this analysis, in fact, uh, wrote some things myself to 
to challenge it. We'll see if I would still do that by the time we get to the end of tonight. This idea, of course, was taken up by many other people. The, um, the director of the Nature Conservancy, Max Nicholson, two or three years later, in his very influential book, The Environmental Revolution, said, the first step must be plainly to reject and to scrub out the complacent image of man, the conqueror of nature, and of man licensed by God to conduct himself as the world's worst pest. Now, I guess if we went back to the 1970s, the research project for some of you Calvin folks, if you'd like to go back and look at sermons that were preached in the 1970s, I wonder how many Christians were expressing concerns about the environment and what kind of theology should have been or perhaps was beginning to be created to meet this um, environmental challenge. And he's not alone, perhaps. The 20th century's greatest historian and certainly one of the most publicly famous, of course, was Arnold Toynbee. Toynbee wrote an article also in 1970 called The Religious Background of the Present Environmental Crisis. And he had this to say. And has nature no rights against this autocratic creator and against man, God's aggressive licensee? The remedy lies in reverting from the worldview of monotheism to the worldview of pantheism, which is older and was once universal. Which is, which is older and was once universal. I've, back to pantheism. I think that was it. My eyesight's not too, too great. Now, of course, there were complications to this story. And uh, a number of people, um, not really from a Christian background at all, uh, began to say, you know, there's, there are complicating factors in this whole way of thinking. Um, one of them, uh, a scholar called Lewis Moncrief, actually said, no, um, we can't pin the blame here in Christianity. Um, uh, we've got to take other factors into account. The two that he mentioned was, first of all, democratization in the wake of the French Revolution, which, by which he really meant that if only a few people wanted to live extravagantly and exploit nature, that wasn't really a problem. But once everybody got the taste for it, then it really did become a problem. So, if anything, democracy is to blame uh, for this because everybody wants to be as richly off, well off, as their neighbor. And I'm sorry, a, a number, a bit of this will be orientated to the United States, the American frontier experience. That notion of free land that was available and that could be grabbed, particularly under the Homestead Act, if I recall from the 19th century, bred an attitude of there's plenty of environment there. And there's plenty that we can use for, for human purposes. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think this was broadening out the reasons for the environmental crisis beyond simply Christianity. Um, Chinese scholar Yifu Tuan, um, he actually had a, an empirical look at Eastern practices of deforestation, all those pantheistic religions, and yet he found that they were just as destructive of the environment as Western Christianity. So for all the talk of a more ameliorative attitude towards the natural environment in Eastern religions, deforestation, rice terracing, and urbanization were just as bad and having such, at least as negative effect on the environment. Jewish scholar Eric Isaac made the observation that the devastation of vast areas of the old world by the Arab imperial expansionists and the denudation of central Burma by Buddhism, a religion much lauded by white for its attitudes 
suggested, of course, that other religions were no more uh, suited, or at least uh, practically did not bring about uh, a greater sense of environmental responsibility. Um, so I think that was the challenge, and um, I, I did begin to think um, about, about this whole question of uh, Christianity's role, and uh, uh, not only with respect to um, environment in general, but to wild places in particular. And I want to take us on a little bit of a historical story here um, to look at uh, what I'm calling uh, the Puritan errand into the wilderness. I think, I guess now we, most of us, have a pretty positive attitude towards wild places. Uh, the idea of wilderness has become, I think, important to many people as a place of um, retreat, as a place perhaps even of spiritual renewal, um, as a place of contemplation, perhaps even as a place of uh, finding uh, God. But believe me, that was not always the case. As a matter of fact, it's a relatively speaking modern idea, that particular dimension of it. And so I went back to a very, very early statement about one of, by one of the Puritans, Michael Wigglesworth, who wrote this very, very famous text in 1662, God's Controversy with New England. And it was in poetic form, and this is one of the things that he had to say. Beyond the great Atlantic flood, there is a region vast, a country where no English foot in former ages passed. Now then, how does he describe it? A waste and howling wilderness where none inhabited, you'll see why I have to say it that way in a minute, but hellish fiends and brutish men that devils worship at. The wilderness was a spiritual enemy to the Puritans. It housed alien peoples, alien things. It was waste and howling, and it needed to be brought under human control. The dark and dismal western woods, the devil's den while air, a while ago that means, beheld such glorious gospel shine as none beheld more clear, where Satan had his scepter swed for many generations. The king of kings set up his throne to rule among the nations. Conquering the wilderness was a spiritual act. It was removing disorder, removing chaos, removing danger, removing a home for paganism, indeed removing the very home of Satan. And so there is a sense in which in our own heritage uh, there is a profound ambivalence about wilderness that did make me think that uh, perhaps Lynn White Jr. had to say, had something to say that was perhaps telling. Let me confirm this by William Bradford, of course, famous for um, the settlement in, 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 uh, uh, in Plymouth. What could they see, the Puritans, but a hideous and desolate wilderness, full of wild beasts and wild men? And what multitudes might there be of them they knew not? The whole country full of woods and thickets, represented a wild and savage hue. But interestingly, that was not the only Puritan view that was available at the time. This represented, I think, perhaps a dominant, but certainly only one element in the Puritan attitude to the wilderness. Uh, take this, uh, for example, by another uh, uh, Puritan minister, Thomas Morton, in 1622, and he's talking about looking out in the wilderness. 
The more I looked, the more I liked it. And when I had more seriously considered of the beauty of the place with all her fair endowments, I did not think that in all the known world it could be paralleled. In my eye, twas nature's masterpiece, her chiefest magazine of all where lives her store. If this land be not rich, then is the whole world poor. Uh, Thomas Morton, however, was found guilty of heresy and sent back home. Um, to be fair, I think for other things other than this view of wilderness, I'm glad to say. But you see there's an ambivalence. And I think that there's an ambivalence here that stretches its, right, its way right up to the present day within uh, the, Christian, the Christian church. It would be interesting to think of the role of the wilderness in Scripture um, here's a picture, of course, of Hagar and her daughter being thrown out into the wilderness. And um, commenting on uh, the wilderness in Scripture, the American Bible Society had this to say, Through the experience of the Israelites in Israel, we learn that while the biblical wilderness is a place of danger, temptation, and chaos, it is also a place for solitude, nourishment, and revelation from God. These themes emerge again in Jesus' journey into the wilderness. So I think we are handed, as it were, an ambivalent, an ambivalent attitude, um, those of us in Reformed um, and probably Calvinistic traditions. We're handed an ambivalent record, at least from the 17th century. <laughs> I want to introduce you now to show you something about the development of uh, a sensibility towards the natural world in the late 19th and early 20th century. And there are two key figures that I need to introduce you to. Uh, the first one is a famous forester uh, called Gifford Pinchot, who was deeply committed to the conservation movement. This is around the, the turn of the, of the uh, 20th century. And John Muir. John Muir, famous, of course, for his encounter with uh, Yosemite Valley and for his, um, uh, the pressure that he put on um, American government uh, to get the Wilderness Act um, and other National Park Acts um, through, the, uh, through the state legislature. Now, they had a very famous discussion or debate or perhaps even an argument uh, that took place in the early 20th century. And um, it was over, over this in California. This, of course, is a very famous valley called Hetch Hetchy. Some of you will have heard of Hetch Hetchy. It is in the High Sierras in California, part of, I think, the Yosemite Valley Park. And John Muir was deeply committed to preserving this valley for its use for um, solitude and reflection and the preservation, I think we would now say, of biodiversity and things of that sort. He was deeply, deeply committed to the transcendental beauty and uh, challenge and solace of wild nature. But San Francisco didn't have enough water. And the question was, how were the water needs of San Francisco to be met and Gifford Pinchot, who was a conservationist, but a wise-use conservationist, as the term came to be uh, uh, known, wanted to flood this valley 
to provide for the water needs of San Francisco. And as a matter of fact, that's exactly what happened. And this concreted, I think, two dimensions to the conservation movement. To what extent should nature be preserved and left untouched, as it were, by human hand? Uh, Very much what was enshrined in the national parks uh, way of thinking in the United States. Very different from national parks in the the United Kingdom, where, of course, there are human inhabitants, uh, people who actually live and farm and and, and, uh, change those landscapes. But the lust here was to find untouched nature, and a variety of wilderness acts uh, were passed in order to bring that about preservationism over against using nature wisely in a conservationist way, but using it for the needs of human populations. Where would you stand on that issue? An issue that's got this challenge to provide the water needs of a city or places for mostly urbanites to resort to for the beauties of the natural world. Interestingly, farmers aren't particularly enthusiastic, at least at this stage, about wilderness. They got enough of it. It was really aimed at people living in urban environments. Now, as I thought about this, it struck me that in the history of Christian theology, you get both of these being supported. And I thought it would be useful for us to think just a little bit about what the witness of our own Christian tradition is with respect to conservation and indeed preservation, not particularly using that vocabulary, but nonetheless, I think, articulating something of the values that that, that are to be found, found there. John Calvin, his commentary on Genesis 2.15. Steve, have you got uh, John Calvin right? Uh, no, just... <laughs> thought it was. Let him who possesses a field so partake of its yearly fruits that he may not suffer the ground to be injured injured, uh, by his negligence, but let him endeavor to hand it down to posterity as he received it, or even better cultivated. Let him so feed on its fruits that he neither dissipates it by luxury nor permits it to be marred or ruined by neglect. Let everyone regard himself as the steward of God in all things which he possesses. Then he will neither conduct himself dissolutely nor corrupt by abuse those things which God requires to be preserved. Now I think here, despite the word preserve, he's talking about using nature wisely. That you have a responsibility to the natural order and a responsibility to pass it on to succeeding generations in a way that is, that is not destroyed either by negligence or indeed by being dissolute. And there's a strong tradition of this in Christianity right up through, for example, the, the 17th century. Carolyn Merchant is a very famous um, eco-feminist, feminist writer on environmental matters. And um, interestingly, she went back to a really critical um, theology text that had been written in, in 1713 by William Derham. And she writes, Derham's physical theology accepted the idea of a designed earth in which humans were stewards over creation. God made men in his own image as wise conservators. In the designed earth of John Ray and William Derham lied the roots of environmental recovery. So here's Merchant saying that actually in Christianity lie the roots of the possibility of developing a coherent and sympathetic ecological ethic. 
Here an awareness of environmental decline wrought by improvident depletion of resources for commercial gain could be countered by conservation. Conservation was rooted in an an ethic of human stewardship over creation. So that's, I think, on the side of the conservationists. On the side, I think, perhaps a little more of just preserving nature. The Reverend Gilbert White, in his famous book, The Natural History of Selborne, a very interesting comment. The most insignificant insects and reptiles are of much more consequence and of much more influence in the economy of nature than the incurious are aware of. Earthworms, though in appearance a small and despicable link in the chain of nature, yet, if lost, would make a lamentable chasm. Christian poet, the 18th century, Christopher Smarty, declared that, I love this, the beetle is precious in the sight of God, though his appearance is against him. Some of you might take heart uh, from the latter part of that. Charles Wesley instructed parents not to allow their children to needlessly harm any living thing, specifically snakes, worms, toads, and flies. And so I think it's the case we move on up into our own day that we've had a whole range of persuasive um, biblical philosophies of the environment. And I think that if you want to follow up any of these many books, I've done my best to make sure that um, uh, the Dutch Reformed tradition is well represented here with um, uh, Bauma Prediger, who I think is down at the Alternative Institution in Holland, not too far from, from Grand Rapids, um, Richard Bachman, uh, uh, Lauren Wilkinson, uh, and uh, Cal DeWitt, and people of this sort. Environment is really now on our theological agendas. I think it should have been there much earlier. But nonetheless, it's here, and I think that this is showing a very, very serious and important Christian response to environmental challenge. And in fact, just a few months ago, um, uh, the Pope brought out a book um, entitled Our Mother Earth, a Christian reading of the environmental challenge. This came from the Vatican website, and um, I think there's considerable wisdom in what he has to say. We'll see a dark side about this in a very few minutes' time. In our time, he said, we have forgotten the active and open dimension of being, instead privileging the dimension of having, a possessiveness that leads to closure, where human beings define themselves and recognize themselves only to the extent of their material goods. Pollution, global warming, climate change, and loss of biodiversity, the effect of uncontrolled exploitation are designed to grow exponentially, are destined to grow exponentially if there is no change of direction in the short term. We need an environmental conversion, the Pope Pope Francis says, that is possible through the phenomenon of a truly ecological education that would create, especially in the young, a renewed awareness, and ultimately a renewed conscience. Well, 
So far, so good. And I think that if we left here and went home tonight with a little pat on the back for how Christians are doing a great thing with respect to thinking about theology to the environment and encouraging us to be much more environmentally sensitive, sadly, I think that would be a mistake. Because I fear that there is a darker side to the whole story that I have been telling tonight. And these are, to me, a couple of very serious challenges to still all right for a minute or two, to the Christian church. The first one is what I'm calling environmental eschatology. Now, of course, environmental problems and climate change in particular is often depicted in the language of apocalypticism. We are heading for an environmental apocalypse where there will be meltdown, where there will be um, the complete disappearance of whatever we mean by civilization as we know it, unless we take drastic action in the very near future. In a sense, that is a kind of eschatology. It's a, a secular eschatology frequently pointing to the future. But I fear it has attracted the eyes of some Christians who are also fascinated by eschatology and who are reading the environmental crisis, if such there be, in a hugely different kind of way. And these are politically very, very significant group, but they're part of the Christian family. And therefore, they're part of our own family. Christianize the world, forget it. Evangelize the world, Christian. That is your mission to the world. Try to bring Christian values, morals, precepts, and standards upon a lost world, and you're wasting your time. The Bible's already told you the world will get worse, not better. There's a whole movement saying that Environmental destruction is merely a sign of the end times. And uh, it's, not, it's not only is it worthless to try to stop uh, these terrible things happening to the environment, by doing that we might be actually slowing up the second coming. Um, now, lest you think that uh, this is an insignificant, statistically small group, this is not the case at all. I'm going to give a quote here from um, a figure that some of the uh, older ones at least will have heard about, maybe going back to 30 years, Hal Lindsay. Um, it's quite interesting here. Uh, Hal Lindsay's books sell just a little bit better than mine. <laughs> um, mine sell about 18. And his sell about 18 million. In fact, they do sell over 18 million. God sent us to be fishers of men, not to clean the fishbowl. Vernon McKee, you don't polish brass on a sinking ship. The task is to evangelize the world, not to bring about environmental, environmental change. Chuck Smith is going back to 1980, author of a book on, on end times, had this to say. Destruction of the ozone layer is the fulfillment of Revelation 16 which tells of the fourth vial poured out when power is given to the sun to scorch humanity. Overpopulation fulfills Jesus' saying that famines would be one of the signs of the end of the world. The accumulation of DDT in the oceans fulfills the prophecy in Revelation where John sees a mountain burning with fire, falling into the sea and destroying one-third of the sea creatures. 
Now, this is not a statistically insignificant group. It's not just the 18 million. The Atlantic Monthly recently ran this. Half of Americans think climate change is a sign of the apocalypse. Now, I don't know if that means, therefore, that half of the people living in Grand Rapids think that that's the case. Probably not. But nonetheless, there's a huge move in this in this um, direction. Um, one of the online uh, means of communication used by groups of this sort is, is what looks like a newspaper called Harbinger's Daily. And it's quite interesting with the recent uh, protests by young people about the, the tre- tremendous challenges of climate change and the attempt to get governments to act as one to try and bring about some kind of global environmental policy with some teeth that would actually restrict some of the behaviors that we certainly have to have to restrict as quickly as we can. This was picked up as evidence of the near end of time. I mentioned that wonderful, wonderful quotation from Pope Francis about the environment. It was picked up in this particular blog, and this is what someone had to say. Um, I, what I will do is actually put on my reading glasses to be able to read this a little bit, uh, a little bit more quickly. It's just a little bit longer, uh, but it's interesting nonetheless. The book of Revelation tells us that during the tribulation, the Antichrist will exert worldwide control through a totalitarian world order. What will cause the nations of the world to give up their sovereignty and rights to such a socialistic regime? I believe he will convince them that their only hope of survival is to join together against the threat of worldwide devastation via global warming. We see this already at work. According to a September 1, 2019 Reuters report, quotes, Pope Francis challenged governments on Sunday to take drastic measures to combat global warming and reduce the use of fossil fuels, saying that the world was experiencing a climate emergency. The Pope went on to say, We have caused a climate emergency that gravely threatens nature and life itself, including our own. On at least 12 different occasions, Pope Francis has advocated a one-world government as a solution to the dire threat of climate change. Harbinger of Antichrist, with 18 million people reading uh, things of this, this sort. I was interested to find that there's a website called Rapture Ready. And I would encourage you to go and look at this because, believe me, Rapture Ready has a lot of votes in the United States. Now, what they have here, now, you don't really see it too well, is um, a Rapture Ready Index. And this Rapture Ready Index looks around the world for a whole set of signs of the coming apocalypse and how close it is and assigns a score to it and then adds the score up. And you can see here that there are quite a lot. Uh, You probably can't read it too well, but I mean, one of them is wild weather. I think it gets a score of five. Uh, drought uh, gets a score of two. Climate, four, and uh, a variety of things of this sort. And then you top them up, <clears throat> and then that tells you whether there's a lot of prophetic activity going on. And um, if you read this bit uh, here, which you probably can't see, uh, let me see if I can read it off this. 100 and, be- and below is slow prophetic activity. Um, 130 to 160 is heavy prophetic activity. Um, the score for uh, 20, uh, 2018, October 15, was 186, and it says this, 180 above. <clears throat> Fasten your seatbelts. 
Now, this is sort of humorous, but this is really serious about the Christian church beginning to think, you know, maybe Lynn White had something. It's a vast bulk of people. And on the radio shows connected with this, um, books are coming out. Listen to this. Um, Andy Woods, pastor of a church in Texas, claims that with President Trump's decision to withdraw the United States from the Paris Climate Accord in 2017, Satan's agenda for this world just suffered a massive setback. Jerry Ungurian, another End Times writer, called the agenda for the 2015 Sustainable Development goods, um, Goals of the United Nations clearly satanic. Steve Schumann says something similar. I'm not going through all of these. They're sadly repeating, and, and the websites do this as well. Hannah Lindsay's still alive well and, and, and doing, uh, as far as I know, these broadcasts. On this week's program, I'm going to scratch the surface of the climate change fraud and show you how it is being used to consolidate governments of the world into a coalition that may sometime facilitate the rise of the Antichrist. I think that's one of the challenges, actually, for the Christian church, to educate Christians seriously about environmental matters. Even in our own Presbyterian church, I wonder how central environmental matters are to our agenda. Now, I really do need about seven or eight minutes to finish here, Steve, if, if you don't mind. There's another side of this that deeply perturbs me, which is from a secular side, and I think that I want to think just briefly about this, and I might skip over some of the quotations because I know that um, time time is going quickly. And what I'm calling this is the securitization of climate change. We want to move now from inside the church problems to, I think, something else that at least has bothered me as I've been trying to read around around this subject. Climate change and war. Climate change and national security. Now, I think this goes back way back to the late 1980s. There was a very famous conference in Toronto, which was about the um, security, national security implications of, of climate change. And of course, once you start talking about climate change and national security, you start talking about money. And you start talking about where government should spend money. And this, um, this person, Fenn um, Osler Hampson, reported back in 1988, the conference underscored the need for governments to refine their national security and military spending priorities and address the geopolitical dimensions of climate change in the resource allocation, in resource allocation decisions. Now what's bothering me about this, and in the next few slides, is the ease with which climate change is thrown into a context of national security and military. Because the idea is that climate change is going to bring about war, and we need to be ready for war. It's not, notice, that it's thrown into the context of social justice, but much more into a militaristic one in many, many cases. Um, Margaret Beckett, this is 2007, British Foreign Secretary speaking to the UN Security Council. Recent scientific evidence has reinforced and in some cases exceeded our worst fears. It's given us a picture of the physical impact on our world that we can expect as climate changes. Those impacts are far beyond the environment. Their consequences reach to the very heart of the security agenda. When Chris Hoon, for a short period of time, was Minister of Climate Change and Energy, he too said exactly the same thing in around about 2012. Now, I was particularly interested to see uh, these British um, comments also being, of course, picked up seriously on the other side of the Atlantic. 
very important document that came out um, just a few years ago now entitled National Security and the Threat of Climate Change had as its uh, particularly significant board of trustees for this or advisory board the following. General Gordon Sullivan, Admiral Frank Bowman, Lieutenant General Lawrence Farrell, Vice Admiral Paul Gaffney and so on, the whole way down. All military. Now it's quite interesting to read this, this report because this report addresses many, many dimensions of climate change. But it's interesting that it's in a military context. Asia. Climate change can affect important United States strategic interests. And what's the concern about? The greatest concern will be the movement of asylum seekers and refugees who, due to ecological devastation, become settlers. Immediately, the problem of environmental refugees and environmental migrants is in the context of what it does to strategic interests. I think that's a challenge for the church to think about that. Admiral Donald Pilling on operational challenges of climate change talks about, we're not not worried about the quotation, it talks about the challenges for having to mobilize for war that comes about through climate change and therefore more money has to go into the investment in war infrastructure to overcome the challenges of climate change, particularly in a military uh, theater of, of operations. It goes on with exactly the same thing, battlefield readiness and climate energy. Could repeat this many times over. Under the summary document, direct impacts on military systems, infrastructure, and operation, the chief one was from global warming and rising sea levels, bases are threatened by rising sea levels. Now, this is not alone. It's not the only document. Really important document on the recognition that, indeed, climate is going to lead to war is the argument. I'm deeply skeptical that that's necessarily the case. But nonetheless, the um, age of consequences... In another Pentagon-orientated report, there are worries about Muslim immigrants. There are worries about um, uh, traditional religious beliefs are going to be the losers in this, and so on. My my time's going, so I'll not say very much more about this particular, uh, to me, worrying, worrying context. What I will say is that reducing war to climate matters often hides some of the structural inequalities, not least in the third world, that are equally contributory, if not more significant contributions to the development of war. Just last week in the conversation was this very interesting one uh, about this Bangladeshi man who came into very, very serious difficulty. His story shows why linking climate change with conflict is no simple matter. The journalist, I don't know who she is, but wrote to me very wisely when she had this to say about this particular man. The loss of natural resources in the area due to climate stress played a role in the conflict Muzaffar faced. However, so did land politics, power dynamics, social stigmatization, discrimination, and the legacy of colonialism. Climate never pulls a trigger. Human beings do. It's too easy to blame climate change when we're the ones who instigate war. Well, I'm almost finished. I want to put before you, just to conclude, three Christian proposals General proposals, maybe, maybe you think very vague, but three things that I think are important to me in thinking about not just the problems in ecology, but ecological problems.
One, a political economy of enough. Our governments are really bent on economic growth. Uh, if, your growth if, if your economy is stagnating, that seems to be a major kind of problem. I think we have to challenge that, and I think we have to challenge it, frankly, on directly biblical grounds. You, you will bear with me when I, just I read a little bit of scriptures here. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. If our national economies were driven more by everyone having enough to be content rather than the assumption that economic growth will trickle down to make uh, the poorer better, um, I think that might not necessarily be a bad direction in which to move. That's my first principle. A justice theology of migration. Instead of instantly putting uh, environmental migration and environmental refugees into the threat category or into the category of a threat multiplier, maybe we should just pause to think of uh, a few biblical things that are said about, about migration and foreigners. And, and I know you can come back to me and say, oh, those are Old Testament passages and they're in a theodicy and so forth. If you want to do that, fine. But just listen to Scripture. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native-born. I am the Lord your God. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Um, I thought it wouldn't be inappropriate uh, Ken and Gail, to put um, your friend and mine on the screen right now. Nick Waldersdorf was here quite a few years ago, not the last time he was here, but on a previous occasion, and um, he did, did a little talk. It was actually out in the back room here um, in Fitzroy. There weren't very many of us uh, there. Um, this could be 25 years ago. Um, but um, he sent me a copy of the, the paper that he had produced, and I was perusing it the other day, and there's something about this that I find so right-headed. God has a special love for the little ones of the world, for the weak, defenseless ones, the ones at the bottom, the excluded ones, the miscasts, the outcasts, and outsiders. The test of a just society is not whether they're economically powerful of enough to eat. They almost always do. But whether they economically powerless have enough. 
Justice is society's charter of protection of its little ones. That's why the biblical writers, when speaking about justice and injustice, always point to the foreigners and the widows and the orphans. If we're thinking about the social and political consequences of climate change, let's think about justice for those who don't have, rather than worrying about building ways to keep them out. And finally, a liturgical ethic of creation. Now, I know that when I turned to this, um, I, I'm not necessarily returning to Francis of Assisi and going to preach to the animals. But I'm going to say this. Um, you can um, metaphorize away what Psalm 148 says and think that it is mere rhetorical flourish as a kind of precursor of um, uh, glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow. You can do that if you like. But as I read this psalm, or this section of it, the rest of the creatures on this earth's surface are our fellow worshipers. Praise the Lord from the earth. You great sea creatures in all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, you young men and women, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. It might be mere poetry, but it stresses human continuity with nature. I mean, there are other parts in Scripture where human difference from the created, from aspects of the created order are underscored, but here it's our continuity. And as someone writing about this um, said, would it make a difference if we thought of creatures not just to be used for our purposes, but as fellow worshippers? Perhaps a challenging thought, but that's, I think, where I'd like to leave it for tonight. Thank you.